are not mentioned in that part of Genesis at all. All right, uh, now who else has one? Uh, speak now or really after hold your speech. I've often wondered what would happen at a wedding if somebody would speak. At that point, it would be interesting to say the least. Now, starting at uh, 192, what chapter of Genesis records the first battle mentioned in the Bible? Someone said the first battle was when Cain fought Abel and killed him, but uh, that's hardly a battle, that's only a murder. First battle is in Genesis chapter 14, and let me tell you, among Bible-believing scholars and those who are not Bible-believing, this is one thing where there's agreement that this chapter is of very, very great antiquity, or the, the, the story of Genesis is extremely great antiquity. This is generally accepted as genuine and old, at least the, the basic structure of it, on all hands today. And this is really something. Um, chapter 14, the invasion of the Jordan Valley by a coalition of four Mesopotamian kings and their subsequent defeat by Abraham. Quite a story, all right. Now, four Mesopotamian kings, they came from the lower Euphrates, Kedar-Lehomer and three others. They were uh, in, a, in a party, a raiding party together. And they had had conquered this area around the southern end of the Dead Sea, and for 12 years those people paid the annual tribute. All came around to collect the money, and then um, the messenger that came to get it took it back to Kedar Leomer and company, and that was that. And the 13th year they decided they paid enough money, and when the messenger came that year they said, sorry sir, but we have decided not to pay. Oh, you have? Well, all right, this is cute. So he went back and told on them, and one more year, here comes Kedar Leomer and company with an army in force to punish them for refusal to pay the tribute and to enforce the collection of it, and generally, let's say, put the fear of Babylonia into their hearts. And um, the question has been raised, what was it they wanted in this area? Well, that comes a little later. We'll take time we get to it. Now then... Uh, they uh, captured and uh, looted Sodom and Gomorrah and two or three other places and took the, a lot of the people from their captives, including Lot, Abraham's nephew, who was living in the city of Sodom where no <coughs> godly person should have been, but he was there. You know, Abraham and Lot separated, and Lot moved closer and closer to Sodom as he pitched his tent towards Sodom. And the next thing you find out, Lot has put living in tents and has got him a house in Sodom. And it says in the New Testament, he was he vexed his righteous soul from day to day at the filthy actions of the wicked. But he didn't vex it quite enough to get him to move away from there. He vexed it while he continued to live there. One of my professors in seminary said, well, you can see what kind of a town Sodom was, where a man like Lot could shine as a saint. <laughs> Lot was, uh, I take it, a, a believer, a saved man, but uh, an inconsistent and compromising one. I mean, a weak, say a weak or compromising or inconsistent Christian. Anyway, he and his family, wife, and children were kidnapped by these raiders who 
got away with them clear up north of Damascus into Assyria. Somebody <coughs> came and told Abraham that this had happened, and he immediately organized a posse of 318 men from his own camp, and three local Canaanite chiefs were also um, friendly to him and uh, went with him on this. And they made a lightning raid up the Jordan Valley. Now, I've got a book here. I think I'll pass this around, too. But Malcolm Glick, a Jewish writer, he's a Reformed Jew, professor in the Jewish seminary in Cincinnati, Ohio, an archaeologist, and um, I don't suppose he's poking his nose around there right now, but um, being Jewish, uh, he uh, worked in the area of the Kingdom of Jordan, Transjordan. He uh, learned to speak Arabic, just like the natives, and dressed like the Arabs, and became extremely friendly with them, and um, got all sorts of hospitality and grace from them, and uh, did pioneer work up and down the east side of the Jordan Valley. These pictures in this book, his attitude toward Jesus is typically um, Jewish and romantic. Jesus was only human, but a great Jew. But anyway, uh, this is not what we read this book for, but what he says about the land and the terrain. He says one time, he picked up the party on the surface, worked up from underneath, said to one of these Arab sheiks, these pebbles and pieces of pottery can tell me the story of the past. And the sheikh said, what do they say about the future? To which Quick replied, only God knows the answer to that. But uh, he uh, himself faced the past that everyone took with uh, his party, not the up to Jordan Valley. He made the trip and visited the places and described them here in graphic detail. And there was a highway up there called the King's Highway. It was later called the King's Highway. And um, on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, now then, uh, 193. A remarkable fact is the use of archaic place names in this chapter. It mentions one place after another and gives a name and then says, sort of as a parenthesis, the same as such and such. Bela, the same as Zoar. The Vale of City, the same as the Salt Sea. This indicates the antiquity of the narrative, that it gives the name as it was in Abraham's day, and then in addition it gives a later name so that readers of the book of Genesis would know what place is being talked about here. Now then, uh, um, these kings from the east went southward on the east side of the Jordan until they reached southern Palestine. And Dr. Unger says critics used to consider this a count against the genuineness of the story. These critics, of course, said, you know, some people like chess and some like ping pong and some like to take pot shots at the Bible. And they're this category. And sort of an indoor sport for some people. But anyway, later, modern discovery, more recently, has shown that um, this was a well-known route. It was a highway. It was a road. It went down on the east side of the Jordan. From uh, near Damascus, straight south, clear down the whole way, till you got to the area of the Dead Sea. Now, what may the four Mesopotamian kings have wanted in Palestine? They conquered this place, and then 12 years later, they came back on a return trip. 
What was it about? This was far from their home, hundreds of miles. Uh, even going straight to east to west, it would be hundreds of miles. And the way they would have to go, it would be much further. Nobody could go straight across the desert. So they must have had something they wanted there. This couldn't have been simply a, like to go for a summer vacation to Yellowstone Park or something. There must have been a reason for these graves and for their insistence that they would have control of that area. And uh, this was pretty well agreed upon. The minerals there, probably copper and very likely the asphalt or the bitumen. This was a product in demand in the Mesopotamia where it was used in all building construction. You had to have this stuff and it was found also near Babylon, but only uh, that part didn't mind out. And now they're using this, this bitumen or asphalt called in the Bible pitch. You get that on your hands and on your clothes, is it easy to get off? Well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, when they uh, put blacktop on the alley back of your house and you walk on it without realizing that it's sticking to your shoes and then come in and walk on your wife's brand new rug, it's the outcome of this. A fellow went to a florist shop and said, what would you recommend me to buy for my wife? We have flowers. The florist said, well, sir, just what have you done? <laughs> so this stuff is very sticky and gooey, and it made a, an ideal bond between bricks. Now, the four Mesopotamian kings mentioned in Genesis 14 that came from uh, the Euphrates River area to uh, fight against Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth, have these been identified with um, any persons uh, known in the cuneiform uh, records that have been discovered? No, they, they have not. And if they could be, this would settle a whole um, series of questions and controversies about the date of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, you see, we can figure out the date of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob according to the Bible give or take about 10 years. But uh, as far as proving it by archaeological evidence that has been found, this has not been done. And so you have a great fluctuation about this date. Um, Amraphel, mentioned among those four kings, Amraphel, king of Shinar. Uh, a few years ago, it was common to say that this man was identical with Hammurabi, and therefore, Hammurabi and Abraham were contemporaries. Now, this is abandoned today. <clears throat> there is not a single consonant in the two names, the Semitic alphabet letters, Hammurabi and Amraphel. There isn't a single consonant that's the same. The names are absolutely distinct. But in spite of the slight similarity of sound news. And uh, Hammurabi is they dated in the 1700s, about the time of Joseph in the Bible, and could not have, he was a real person, right? Could not have been in the time of Abraham. If we could settle this, it would be very satisfying to many scholars and would take some things out of the field of problems and put them in the field of uh, finished business or certainties. Now, some finds have narrowed it down some, but um, still, uh, as far as from um, archaeological discovery of concerns, the date of the patriarchs remains uh, floating items. 
Now, the Rauhausen School of Biblical Critics, you know who Rauhausen was? Lived about 1850, and after a German scholar, Julius Rauhausen. He's the one that worked out, the, one of the early ones, that worked out the divisive critical theory of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There was a Frenchman before him, but Rauhausen's name has become attached to this, Julius Rauhausen. Held that Moses didn't write it, but that it was written by a series of ghostwriters or anonymous writers hundreds of years later and finally put together by an anonymous editor who was given the symbol R, the redactor, or the Latin word for editor. One of my writer students in Bible 101 put on a paper, the Wellhausen theory holds that the Pentateuch was written by four anonymous writers centuries after the time of Moses, and finally put together by a man named R, which stands for radiator. Now it's redactor, the Latin word for editor. This uh, theory uh, divides it up into documents, the J document that uses the name Jehovah for God, the E document uses the name Elohim for God. These are hypothetical components of the first five books. T document, the priestly document, the D, the Deuteronomic Code, and then there's many subdivisions of these. This, you should realize, is all hypothetical. And uh, the trend of archaeological discovery has been to discredit it, even though there are plenty of people still believe in it. But uh, change comes slowly. But the trend of archaeological discovery has been to support the early date, unity, and genuineness of the writings of Moses. Now, Julius Wellhausen, what did he believe about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? <laughs> All right, it got recorded. You see what I mean? <laughs> it's now become immortal. It belongs to the ages. <laughs> All right, what did Wellhausen believe about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as people? Mr. Brown, you know? He said it was fiction. Uh, he said a... Um, Free creation of unconscious art, in other words, a fairy tale. Now, I think you should realize one thing about Wellhausen. He was never in his life in the Holy Land. Wellhausen, like the rest of his tribe, were ivory tower scholars in German universities. The archaeology of Palestine and neighboring countries was in its infancy, scarcely even begun in Wellhausen's day. And therefore, the evidence that archaeology is today accumulating was completely unknown to him. And he spun this theory about the Pentateuch and Abraham and so forth, that sort of uh, just from reading the books and uh, from his presuppositions and preconceptions about what early history must have been like. And archaeology that leaves the ivory tower of the scholars and goes out in the field and starts to dig and find out what can really be found in the way of material evidence has strongly tended to uh, reverse his, his verdict or his judgment on this matter. He held that the patriarchal narratives were fairy tales or fiction stories composed in the 9th and 8th centuries B.C. That's the 700s and the 800s, time of the, uh, of the early kingdom period in the Old Testament. And that these stories perhaps... Um, Largely fiction, maybe a small chorus act, told around campfires and so forth, and 
bedtime stories for ages of time and finally written down long after the uh, alleged events had happened. Now, Unger points out that this gets Wellhausen in a bind. Of course, he's dead and it doesn't matter anymore what he believes. But anyhow, this gets him in a bind <coughs> because the scene pictured in the Genesis narrative, the names of the places and the um, appearance of the country and its features does not agree with any period in Palestine later than 1200 B.C. It doesn't fit the scene of any time from 1200 B.C. to the present day, but only that before 1200 B.C. And Wellhausen was unaware of this because he had never been there and the country hadn't been thoroughly studied and explored in his time. Now, um, how much has archaeology done to support the genuineness of the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Has it uh, found positive evidence of this? Well, uh, Mr. Johnson has it. Not positive evidence, all right? Now, maybe we could call it, he calls it background material, circumstantial evidence. What has been found matches up with the stories, even though you don't find that inscription that says here Abraham camped in Britain altar or anything like that. At this point, Abraham attempted to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. This will not be found. Now, like the fellow walked to the British Museum and said, these coins I found, they must be valuable. They're stamped 6 B.C. And, uh, now, this kind of thing hasn't been found and probably never will be. But what has been found, the, the culture and the type of society and economy and life and so forth and political organization has been recovered by archaeology and fully matches even to detail what we find in the early chapters of Genesis which describe the life of these men. Now, there are two places outside of Palestine that have been excavated that have yielded real treasure trove. And the one is Nuzu and the other is Mari. Nuzu and Mari. And Nuzu, also spelled Nuzi, N-U-Z-I. You have paid your tuition and you may take your choice. Nuzu or Nuzi. On the Tigris River, south and east of Nineveh, but contemporary with early Old Testament history, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and uh, some after that excavated one generation ago, 1925 to 1941, by, I believe, a French outfit. Anyhow, news were excavated in that period, the, uh, let's say, second quarter of the present century. Now, they found a treasure trove at Nuzu, or Nuzi. Several thousand documents of first-grade importance to the student of the Old Testament, which illustrate the customs that appear in the patriarchal narrative. Now, who were the people of Nuzu? What was their racial connection? Book says it means it. That's the race. Hellions. Does this mean they were in a hurry? These are the same ones called Horites in the Bible. H-O-R-I-T-E-S. Believed to be the same. They were part of the inhabitants of Edom. They intermarried with the descendants of Esau to form the historical Edomites. Uh, one, one component of the Edomites was the Hurrians, the other was the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. 
And uh, so you have these merged and merged to this little migration. The hands or the forest of the Old Testament. Now there's several things on which these uh, thousands of uh, clay documents have shed light. Not all of these have been translated and published. It's a tremendous job, of course. What would you do if you found uh, 20,000 clay tablets and somebody said, go ahead, translate them and publish them? Obviously, this would take a long time. Uh, a highly qualified experts and cost a lot of money. So this hasn't been completed, but a great deal of it has been done. Now, um, it gives examples of customs in the story in the Bible that are illustrated by what was found at Nuzu or Nuzi. And um, the first of these is uh, before Isaac was born. How old was Abraham when Isaac was born? One hundred. He lived to be 175, so he was just middle age at that time. But anyway, before that, apparently um, Abraham and Sarah had just about given up hope. And Abraham, in a prayer to God, Genesis 15:2, said, uh, "I have no child, and my heir is this Eliezer of Damascus, or in Hebrew, Damascus Eliezer. My heir is Damascus Eliezer." This man uh, may have been added to Abraham's outfit when they were on the way to Ken from Haran and passed to Damascus, or it is possible that he was not really from Damascus, but merely a descendant from people in Damascus, and so was called it. I know a man in Beaver Falls who was called a Dutchman, although he was definitely born in Pennsylvania, and um, they just call him Dutch because uh, his ancestors were, well, they were really German, but anyhow, that's what he gets called. Damascus Eliezer. Now, Abraham says, this man is my heir. And the custom found at Nizzi was that if a man was without an heir, or a man and his wife had no heir to inherit their property and especially to take care of them in their old age, they could adopt someone who would then um, care for them as long as they lived, and then when they died, would inherit the property. I wonder, Mr. Starrett, would you say this was a reasonable and wise arrangement? Well, it's uh, going on Social Security anyhow. And uh, this is the, the custom well known. And if the childless couple later had a son of their own, the adopted son must yield priority to the real son of the family. And this happened, of course, when Isaac was born. Master Eliezer is then out of the picture. He's just a uh, business manager of Abraham's outfit of tent. Now there's also a feature of the history of the patriarchs illustrated by marriage laws. Actual laws and marriage contracts were found at Newby. And um, how would you describe the Abraham-Sarah-Hager deal? Well, who is Hager? Mr. Hay, she was a woman servant, and she was an Egyptian. Probably had been given to Abraham's outfit on the occasion of that ill-starred trip to Egypt when Abraham had been a little economical with the truth about who Sarah was. And then Sarah was very good to hush this up, move it over. Anyhow, Hagar seems to have been a person of good character. The story does not represent her in a bad light at all. But Sarah, having apparently weakened and given up the faith that she would have a son, 
quite understandably, of course, said, here is my maid. You take her as a concubine or a secondary wife. Maybe I will get offspring this way. And Abraham did, and Ishmael was born. And later, of course, Sarah had a son of her own. That was Isaac, and this left Ishmael more or less out of the picture. Now, this is illustrated by the discovery this was a recognized practice. Um, it seems rather scandalous to us, and I can't help believing that Abraham and Sarah lost something from their marriage when they consented to this somewhat dubious agreement. From the standpoint of God's laws of marriage, we have to say this was simply wrong. On the other hand, it was regarded as legitimate by respectable, not, not the criminal element, but respectable and the law-abiding people of that day, and was sanctioned and uh, provided for and regulated by human laws, not by God-given laws, but by human laws. A childless wife who had no offspring was to, uh, was required to provide a slave wife for her husband so there might be offspring. This could not be started by the husband. He couldn't say, I want another wife here. But his wife could do it. She could provide a slave woman for a second wife. And let me tell you, she could search the slave markets of Mesopotamia and pick out the ugliest woman in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley if she wanted to, to be a second wife to her husband. Uh, if um, she didn't want a good-looking one, you know, that she might become jealous of. But anyhow, she could provide a secondary wife to her husband. Then, if a son was born, I don't think they counted daughters, but if a son was born, the first one that was born would count in point of law as if he were the son of the original married wife who, however, was childless. And then later, if there was a real son born to the original couple, the son of the slave woman could not be turned out with nothing. He had to be kept on and given a share, although the larger share would go to the, the uh, son of the original couple who was born last. Now, you remember Ishmael badgered and teased and tormented and plagued little Isaac. Quite understandably, you couldn't expect Ishmael to uh, be very happy about the arrival of Isaac, who was going to take the first honors and best part of the property, everything away from him. But he uh, tormented Isaac, as older boys do younger boys sometimes, and uh, I don't think it hurt Isaac too much, but uh, Sarah couldn't stand it. That brute treating my little darling that way? <laughs> so she said to Abraham, throw that slave woman out and her son with her. You're not going to inherit anything along with my son. And it says it was very grievous to Abraham. He didn't want to do it. Now, it seems very unkind in the first place. Harsh. And Abraham wouldn't do it until God commanded him to. He said, do what Sarah says. I have a plan in this and Ishmael will be taken care of. He won't perish or anything and also will become great. But do what Sarah says and turn them out. Now, the discovery that Newsy throw additional light on why Abraham was so reluctant to do this. What Sarah was asking him to do was not only unkind and harsh, but downright illegal from the standpoint of recognized human laws of that day. This was 
forbidden by the laws that concern this kind of relationship as discovered in the clay tablets of Nuzi. So Sarai is asking Abraham to forget about the laws and do something anyhow. And Abraham wouldn't do it until God commanded him. And of course, that takes priority over any number of clay tablets that were at Nuzi or anything like that. So then he did. But this uh, discovery at Nuzi has uh, shed light on this. Now, another thing that has been illuminated by these tablets is Esau selling his birthright to Jacob. Esau, you see, was the older. This was uh, mere, mere technicality. They were twins, but he was rated as the older. And uh, he would get the uh, birthright there for Any of you know what the birthright involved? Why this was considered valuable? Well, would you rather have two dollars than one dollar? The son that had the birthright, when the, if there were two sons, he got a double share of the property. He got two-thirds and the other son got one-third. If there were three sons, the one with the birthright got half, the other two each got a quarter, and so on. He got twice as much as any other one heir. So apart from the, the uh, let's say, prestige value and honor of this was the uh, good hard cash payoff that would eventually come when the father would die and the property would be divided up. And this would have belonged to, to Esau, but Jacob bargained for it and got it, and Esau did not value it enough to hold on to it. Now, at Nuzi, other tablets were discovered by which the firstborn could transfer his birthright to someone else, either a natural brother or an adopted brother, and could take a compensatory payment in exchange and surrender his claim. He signs a quit claim deed. There goes the birthright. And in Esau's case, what did he get for it? Well, missionary. He got a bowl of soup, and I suppose some crackers went with it or something, but uh, he got one dinner. Somebody said the second most expensive meal eaten in history, the most expensive being a fruit salad eaten in the Garden of Eden. But uh, Esau despised his birthright, and on account of this is called a profane person. Now, this is another thing illustrated by the Newsy tablets is um, these teraphim, which I passed a picture around, that uh, Rachel stole from her father, and he got so mad about it. Uh, the clay tablets found at Nuzi show that um, possession of the teraphim or the household gods uh, conveyed a prima facie claim to the family property. You got the household gods all right until proved otherwise the property is yours. And this is probably why Rachel wanted them. Maybe she also was idolatrous and superstitious and wanted to worship them. This could be. But it's significant that she didn't mention it to Jacob. You see, uh, she evidently realized he wouldn't approve of this. Now, that's Sanusi. The next place is Mari. Which river is this on? Mari, M-A-R-I, on the Euphrates. See, these two rivers are parallel, but at this, uh, this far, it's quite a distance apart. Mari on the middle Euphrates. I think Mari is still being excavated, maybe, but it began in 1933. A French excavator and his outfit started excavating Mari. And uh, when Unger's book was written, they had found 
over 20,000 clay tablets at Mari. Uh, part of these have been translated to part of them not. But what have been are a real treasure trove of uh, tremendous value. Uh, part of them from the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some of them are from earlier and some from later times too. But they cover the patriarchal period, more or less. Now, Mari was a uh, flourishing city. There was a book that was um, featured by the Book of the Month Club, The Bible is History, by Werner Keller, translated into English from German. He uh, didn't consider anything before Abraham to be history. So he started with Abraham, and in the second chapter, the title had an exclamation point on it. Abraham lived in the kingdom of Mari. Exclamation point. Well, he didn't really live there, but he must have gone through it en route from Ur to Haran. It was not along the way. It's like you're going to go from here to Rochester. You'd probably go through New Brighton. And it would be possible to go around some other way, but um, this would be on the natural route. Mari, one of the most flourishing and brilliant cities of the Mesopotamian world. And the patriarch Abraham and his father Terah must have passed through this metropolis on their way to Haran. Now, Mari has, um, although Abraham was there, as he never was at Nuzi, has still not shed as much light on the Genesis narratives as Nuzi has, but still it has shed some. And uh, one thing that's mentioned is the city of Nahor. That was Rebekah and Laban's home. City of Nahor, Genesis 24.10. This, this name has been found on the clay tablets of Mari many, many times. Another word, which, however, is controversial as to its real connections, is Habiru, H-A-B-I-R-U. And uh, some have maintained this is another way of spelling Hebrew. There was a learned article in the Westminster Theological Journal of Philadelphia by... Dr. Meredith Klein, who was there when it was written, the Habiru, kin or foe of Israel. And uh, this is extremely complicated, and the um, fact that the Habiru were the Hebrews is disputed, held by some and rejected by others. I'm telling you the way it is. And I'm not trying to make more capital than we have, Mr. Harris. This term occurs widely in widely separate areas. It's found in Egypt, the Habiru, it's found in Palestine, it's found in Mesopotamia. And it seems to have been broader than a single tribe. And the question is, is this the name of a tribe, like we'll say uh, the French or the Scots or something like this, or does it describe a class of people? Now, it could have changed from one to the other. I had an example here in my notes. Gypsies. Where does the word gypsies come from? This was originally Egyptians. And the Egyptians, of course, are the people who live in Egypt. But later on, there came to be roaming bands of people across Europe in the Middle Ages, and even today we have them in this country and other places. And uh, the notion grew up that they were from Egypt. Now, this is demonstrably untrue. The Egyptians are certainly from India. And their language has affinities with Sanskrit, not with ancient Egyptian. <coughs> has affinities with the languages ancient and modern of India. But you see, the idea was, the popular notion that the gypsies were from Egypt, and so uh, they were first called Egyptians, and then this got corrupted by ignorant people who didn't say written, but just spoke it to gypsies. And um, so you have this word. Now, Habiru, this may have been equivalent to Hebrew, 
but also may have been used to designate uh, nomads or wanderers or something like this. I mean, it's Alaska, people who don't settle in one place but move around and live in tents. And so it may mean that. Now, this is, this is disputed between those who hold it strictly equivalent to Hebrews and would therefore designate the Israelites and some others who could be called Hebrews and those who hold that it, um, it's a broad designation of those who followed a certain kind of a pattern of life or living. Now, Hunger goes on from this to talk about divination. What do you mean by divination? Do we have it in Geneva? Well, this is, um, what do you call divination? Superstition, pseudoscience, the attempt to tell the future by omens. The Babylonians did it by uh, looking at a sheep's liver. It says about one of the kings who was approaching Jerusalem, he's already looked in the liver. This was widespread and is illustrated voluminously by finds at Mari. Everything, especially uh, anything about war or military strategy, they wouldn't think of moving a squad from out of town in town hardly without uh, consulting the omens. Everything you got to get the, 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 the omens on. And uh, <clears throat> this is in strong contrast to the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where you don't have the slightest hint of anything like this. You see, there's similarities, and there are also radical differences. Um, all right, one more thing before we leave this at question 222. The name Abraham has been discovered at Mari with a half a dozen variant spellings, but obviously the name Abraham or Abram. And this does not mean that this is a real reference to the Abraham of the Bible, but it means that more than one person had this name, that this was a name used at that time. And it is a tie-in, at any rate, to, that the patriarch who was the head of the chosen people could have been named Abraham. It the time. He wasn't called, uh, called Thomas Jefferson or something like that, but was called Abraham. All right, so we'll see you Monday, see you Friday.